Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. How do we help Gen Z pursue authentic kingdom diversity? Well, I'm really excited about having a conversation with a contributor to our brand new book, No Be Live, a 360-degree approach to discipleship in a post-Christian era, Melissa Palou, and she's going to talk about that. But before I dive into our conversation, I want to share a little bit about her and her work with The Next Generation. She is co-chapter director and community apologist with Ratio Christi at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and in Ratio Christi College Prep Ministry to Youth. And through the ministry of Ratio Christi, she is equipping students to defend the Christian faith as well as engaging unbelievers and skeptical students on the truth of Christianity using history, science, and philosophy. She regularly speaks at conferences and events on a variety of apologetic and worldview issues. She has also been involved in biblical racial unity advocacy and pro-life activism in various leadership and training capacities for the last 15 years. So, Melissa, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. I'm really excited to be with you. Yeah, so first, I mean, one of the reasons that we put together this book based on our Gen Z research with the Barna Group was we wanted to say, okay, who's out there working with students, working with the next generation, working with Gen Zers, who can bring some insight and help us apply a Christian worldview to some of these challenges and opportunities facing Gen Z. So before we get started, would you mind sharing a little bit about what your ministry looks like in a day-to-day uh, basis working with students? Sure. Um, it uh, looks a little different from day to day. Um, we kind of have to go with the flow and um, things randomly are changing and evolving. But we want our presence on our campus to promote discussion and dialogue about the Christian faith um, and just about the world in general, worldview topics, as you mentioned in the intro. So on a day to day basis, that looks different from being outside and just setting up stations around campus to engage students with questions, you know, maybe a whiteboard, for instance, our meetings where we have more in-depth discussions. So there's just, there's a variety of ways that we do that public events that we um, open up to the, the whole campus community and to um, the community at large to, to have various apologetic speakers come in and, and to discuss Topics. So it, it looks very different. I mean, uh, having students in our home, having students, you know, just hanging out in our backyard for bonfires. And it's interesting um, where students regularly say, you know, when we do our social events and we just are having a party or a Super Bowl party or a fall party or just a bonfire in the backyard. Thankfully, we live just about a mile from campus. So we're very close proximity to them, and they can just come over. Um, but they, they say, you know, we generally end up always in some sort of deep discussion about, you know, Christianity or theology or philosophy or apologetics or worldview. And those things just happen authentically at our home and in our social events because the students are hungry for that. So I don't know if that gives you – if that's a complete answer, yeah. but it just – our ministry looks very diverse Um and we are always looking for new ways to uh, infiltrate into impact our, our campus and our community. No, I love that. And I love how 
you talked about how it looks very different, but you have them in your home, you have conversations Mm -hmm. because what I want to help kind of readers of this book or people who work with the next generation hear and learn from today is that, you know, these aren't abstract kind of ideas for you. This is something that's a part of your uh, family. It's a part of your ministry. It's a part of your day-to-day life. And, and I was also wanted to highlight something that you found that students want to talk about big questions, right? Is that, has that been what you found? Once you get them in conversation, is that what you found? Yes. Um, when you throw questions out there and think that they have maybe that are in the back of their mind that, you know, I think many times in the busyness, and I think for many of us in the business of life, and especially with students who are, you know, trying to juggle classes and work and relationships and things of that nature, they have these big questions, but many times don't take the time to sit and think through them. And so when you just, when you pop those to them and let them kind of think on those things, um, it does many times produce really great discussion. I mean, there's rarely a time when, you know, a student, there is some apathy. There are some students who are apathetic who just, you know, like, oh, I just don't care, you know, but mm-hmm. that's not the overwhelming um, feedback that we've gotten in our, in our discussions and in our attempts to, to have discussions. No, that's, that's great. And so in, in what I love is this contribution that you, you made to this book, No Be Live, a 360-degree approach to discipleship in a post-Christian era edited by John Basie here at Impact 360 Institute. And you contributed a chapter called Toward Authentic Kingdom Diversity. And sometimes people wouldn't necessarily think about issues of diversity, which honestly in, in our culture has become very divisive and confusing for a lot of people today. We'll kind of define some terms in a minute. But they wouldn't necessarily see that as a worldview or discipleship issue. But maybe share a little bit about your own story and experience. I know you have a background in that, and you've even shared that you, you feel like your life is saturated with these kind of questions and social questions as well. So maybe talk a little about how that came together and why you're passionate about this. Yes. So I have, I'm born and raised a Southerner, um, born in a little town in South Carolina called Lancaster, grew up in um, a small county in North Carolina. Um, and I'm back now in South Carolina. So I've been a Southerner my entire life. I love the South. And I'm also a part of a multi-ethnic family. Um, as my, my husband is, is Caucasian and we have a daughter. And so I think in the book, she was seven. When I wrote the chapter, she was seven. I mentioned that, but she's eight now. Um, and so, you know, this is my life. I, I live in a you know, in, in a in a marriage of that's inter ethnic, and also just our campus is very um, diverse as well. We actually it's about fifty percent non Hispanic white and fifty percent other, and so you know there are a lot of caricatures I think about Southern living, um, about how things are. But you know, this is I I, I actually live a very diverse multi ethnic life in general, um, from church to campus to my family. Yeah, absolutely. And so because of that, that resonates with what Gen Z is growing up with, right? And as you talk about how they're going to be the most racially and ethnically diverse generation in American history, talk about the opportunities that that brings and also maybe some of the challenges that that brings with it as well. It does. Um, In the chapter of the the book, I I do refer to this generation, as as you mentioned, the most ethnically diverse generation. So um, about 52% of this Gen Z generation are non-Hispanic white. And so that leaves, you know, 40% that are other, you know, so to speak. And also they're a highly relational generation. So in addition to being diverse, this is the generation that values and seeks relationship and sees their value almost in terms of their relationships with others. 
and how others perceive them in a relational manner. This is a generation that's always connected through social media, and they've been raised on social media. And it's a very movement-oriented generation. So they're very, they're very um, feel connected to movements that are much bigger than themselves. And so those are some really neat things about this generation. And so, you know, I, I think the idea that the, the, the ethnic diversity of this generation, the relational aspect, is a great thing because we're seeing that these racial bubbles really don't exist in this newer generation as it has in the past. The challenges with being always connected with the social media aspect and being movement-oriented is that young people, through these relationships that they are developing, they may be interpreting ideology and information at a higher rate. And when it comes to racial issues, so much um, propaganda out there, and they lack the wisdom many times and have not been necessarily trained well when it comes to critical thinking, you know, because of our postmodern culture to think through some of these issues um, of race and unity and things of that nature. So they can get very easily caught up in movements that are based on untruths and that are um, unbiblical. No, that that's really helpful. And so given that landscape, you know, and especially, you know, people who care about the next generation, either parents, teachers, educators, youth pastors, whatever it may be, what are some of the ways that um, those challenges are kind of manifesting itself? And then we're also going to talk in a minute about what we can do about it, but what are some of the ideas that are out there? What are some of the assumptions or maybe the misperceptions that this generation, when they want to do good, they're movement-oriented as you, they're activists in that sense? Like, what are some of those challenges in terms of some of the ideas and the, the different things that they're wrestling with or absorbing? Absolutely. As it relates to race, I mean, our, our mm-hmm. kind of the, the Trojan horses now are the ideas of critical race theory, the ideas of the anti-racism movement, um, white fragility. Um, so these are, you know, of course, I can't give an exhaustive, you know, history of, of these different movements in the time that we have here. But I try to a little bit in the chapter, a little more just these ideas that that are coming, um, you know, critical theory, for instance, um, critical race theory came about in the mid mid seventies from legal scholars who were trying to understand post post civil rights era once the civil rights bill had been signed, and there was kind of this expectancy that black people would just that things would be um, so much different in society, and so. Um, when they saw progress, they they interpreted progress as being slow. They looked for answers in critical theory um, and, and looking more closely at race. Just this kind of combination in the mid-70s of critical race theory came to be one of the, basically, this whole philosophical and sociological movement. Um, basically, it, it places us in these social binary categories based on race and our identities in these divergent intersectional categories. So our value and identity is based societally on a race and whether we're part of an oppressor group of people or an oppressed group of people. And so that's that basically how we interpret um, not just race, but just the world and how we interpret social issues and how we see one another. And so this is a huge barrier when we're talking about this generation that is very diverse, um, this identity aspect of seeing each other in these very um, these very clear defined social binary groups of 
oppressed and oppressed people. Um, it can affect genuine, authentic relationship and genuine, authentic ways of viewing each other. Um, and so, you know, with the anti-racism movement and the idea of our students of this generation being very movement-oriented, anti-racism is very popular because it basically uh, is, it tells students being not racist is not enough, but being anti-racist is what is important. We need to be out there fighting racism, identifying racism. And if you're not fighting racism in some active social uh, movement sense, then you are in fact racist. And so there's just all these different ways of viewing the world that these students are dealing with. And so that, that does create a barrier to genuinely seeing each other for who we are in Christ and as image bearers of Christ. And it presents a problem when we're viewing each other through these philosophical and sociological movements that give us these identities, assign these identities to us, so to speak. Yeah, and that's really helpful kind of as an overview. And even as people hear this, depending upon what circles they tend to run in or what maybe news or different podcasts they consume, on, on one side, what I've heard is, okay, once once the words critical theory or critical race theory are thrown out there, oh, that's the boogeyman. Now you don't want to talk about real issues of injustice on the one hand, right. where either everything is critical race theory, so we're going to do nothing, or there's this other side, which the anti-racism piece, which is not just about being against ethnic or racial issues, that includes sexuality, LGBTQ mm-hmm. plus issues, all all that's baked in. And so maybe help out just by talking about, like, let's just pretend you were having a conversation with a student and they were like, okay, what, what, how do I navigate this about what is anti-racism? Like define a few terms and maybe, I mean, because what I don't think you're saying, and I know, actually, I know for a fact you're not saying is that there isn't real evil in the world or real injustice or real racism that exists. Right, but maybe maybe help parse that out a little bit because I think that's part of the issue with Gen Z because all the messages are bombarding them all the time and they're like, well, what do I do with all this? So so give us a little little wisdom there. Absolutely. So with the anti racism movement, the idea is again that racism is just a part of culture, it's a part of society, and that's just a given presupposition, and that one must be actively fighting that in every aspect of their lives to truly be considered non-racist, so to speak, or to be non-complicit. So there's this active struggle of always fighting racism. What we want to create is a generation of truth seekers who know and recognize that there is racism in the world because there are people in the world, because there are fallen people that exist. And we are proof of that. Each of us is proof of that. And so because there are fallen people, there are bad ideas out there. There are people are mistreated, things of that nature. But we want the students to parse this problem on a um, through critical thinking and to think, to, to not to assume that race is the culprit of everything, but to actually think, are these, you know, specific, you know, for instance, um, these incidences that are coming at us through social media all the time of, you know, now that there's cell phone, uh, people have cell phones with them, they are constantly able to record encounters. And so when I view an encounter that's been gone, that has gone viral and we, I mean, it takes literally five minutes for a, a video to go viral. And so when I'm viewing these things, am I think, am I thinking and assuming that this is a racially motivated incident, or am I thinking that this is, uh, these are people that are in a conflict and that there's just a, a incidence of injustice or 
one being treated unfairly, but do we view everything through race? Is everything that is, is everything a racial incident? And so I want, we want to help our students to be truth seekers and to not just assume what's being told because the caption on these videos is automatically going to tell you what's going on. And typically students just believe it because it's in the caption and it's being told them that this is a narrative of the story. Um, so as not just truth seekers, but we want them to be messengers of truth in this generation. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Racism is, is a real thing. And, you know, I have experienced it on some levels, but not to the extent that it is being uh, told to the world that it's everywhere and in everything. And so um, we just don't want students to look to have the presupposition of uh, racism and race being the culprit of everything, but to think through the issues at hand. And this helps us to come up with better solutions as opposed to just presuppositions and assumptions. Yeah. And I think that's so um, helpful because, I mean, we're emotional beings as well. And we've got to figure out how to sort that out, especially when we see things or hear things. But if we see, see things through a dominant narrative, then all those pieces kind of fit in. And if, if people are trying to kind of create outrage amidst that, I actually think it's much harder to love our neighbor today because of social media than it ever has been because of all, I mean, I don't know what you think about that, but I, like it's, it seems like all these forces around us are trying to carve us up. In fact, in your chapter, you, you say the problem then from a biblical worldview perspective, is that more this leads to more division between image bearers. That's the net result of these secular social theories at the end of the day, because that's what's being baked in. So yeah. maybe say say a little bit more about kind of how you see that division, and then let's talk about how we we move forward towards discipling this generation, because they're the ones that are going to have to kind of walk through this. And so what can we do? But maybe talk a little bit more of that divisive piece in those secular theories for just a second. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there, there's, um, there's gain from division and that is what we're going to be fed, um, in news hysteria and social media outlets and political, um, and, and politics in general, division is, is very advantageous to those who, um, are creating these narratives. And so we have to be wiser than that and help our young people to see through that, to be wiser than that. And we have to also look at this idea of when we're talking about unity, um, and diversity in these, um, they're not just concepts. It's not a, a, an appearance thing. It's a matter of, of our hearts and our heart to live out the gospel with others and to share the gospel with others who may be from different socioeconomic backgrounds, that there's no barriers to the gospel and to genuine relationship. And the scriptures just lay out this idea of image bearers just so perfectly that we can help our, our young people just to uh, to seek that unity. But, you know, this idea that what these narratives create is this white responsibility. And what I want to make clear is that when there's disunity and when there's tensions, there's not one group of people who are responsible for solving this problem or towards working towards unity, that it takes all of us. Dr. George Yancey in his book, um, Beyond Racial Gridlock, he talks about this mutual responsibility. Um, when we are pointing fingers at you know, white people and whiteness as a problem. We are excusing ourselves, I think, as black people and minorities. And we're also um, not seeing the fallen nature of humanity and sin for what it really is. So we see this as an issue where we often come together 
to uh, be unified in the gospel and to live that out with each other without this idea that this group of people is responsible by virtue of their skin color. And then this group of people are the, um, unfortunately, are the, the oppressed group of, of individuals who are the victims of this other class of people. And we, we begin to see each other as more humanly. Yeah, and that's so helpful. And so what I'd love to do now is just kind of shift the conversation to, okay, that's the problem. We, we live in a culture of outrage. There's there's division. Um, I mean, yes, we live with the historical effects of sin in this country in unique ways around uh, the North Atlantic slave trade and everything else with colonial slavery. All of that is part of the past. I mean, Jim Crow, all of that exists. In No one's trying to say that doesn't exist. There's real effects of that stuff. Yet we live in the 21st century now where teenagers are growing up and they're trying to make sense of all of that. So help help kind of share a positive vision that moves forward to say, okay, what is the way forward here in light of all, all this where we're at? Right. And I, again, the, the idea that this generation is so relational and so diverse um, and that there's not these bubbles. Um, you know, social media has broke down those bubbles in terms of any ignorance of things um, because we see them every day. We see the reality of what's going on and we see what's going on across the world right from our living room. Right. Um, And so what we can do is help these students to be, again, thinkers, to live out the gospel in boldness and in truth. And in doing so, we will go outside of our comfort zones and outside of our, our people, so to speak, you know, our socioeconomic groups that um, we tend to stay within because we are compelled by the the love of the gospel and the reality that um, Jesus died for the whole world. And so what we want to do is um, help our students to think through, you know, these, these things. And also, you know, with the the critical theory piece and that this idea of storytelling or um, personal experience is very much elevated to where um, one's personal experience is elevated over evidence and reason. And that, you know, comes to our, our postmodern culture and that. So what we can do is we can empower students to listen to other stories and to listen to their experiences, um, but to posit truth and the gospel within that framework. Um, and so that's, that's my idea of listening but yet that balance of truth in the gospel in, in the midst of these stories that people are sharing um, with us and in the midst of people's experiences. And again, infiltrating these bubbles that may exist and these false narratives that may exist with love, forgiveness. Um, you know, forgiveness and love are actually countercultural things hmm. that we don't think about. You think really what's popular is division and outrage. Okay, and that's what is being marketed as the values of of today is, you know, I I put in the chapter that that I wrote, there's a bumper sticker that I saw, a bumper sticker said, um, if you're not outraged, then you're not paying attention. Right. Hmm. Um, But what we can do is we can pay attention to what's going on. And instead of just being angry and instead of being the um, bearers of more division, we bring Jesus to these situations. We bring Jesus to culture. We bring who he is and what he did and how he lived, what he accomplished on the cross to these situations. So we're not stuck in this demagogue of just outrage, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're actually free because we're actually trying to understand situations 
um, and understand the truth of situations. And we're trying to find ways to bring Jesus into those situations for true healing to exist. Yeah, and I love how you mentioned that that truly is countercultural because a lot of the secular approaches can tear down or maybe even kind of undo some things, but they can't build something better in its place. And the relational way forward right. that's messy and, and takes, you know, we're going to bump into things or say the wrong thing or misunderstand something. or But that's where you're saying, like, okay, well, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Like, help me understand that better or help me move. Like, we, we almost have no more room for that right now in our culture. Is that kind of what you've seen in, in Dynamics? It's like, it's like one one strike and that's it. Is that is that kind of what you're seeing? Well, yeah, that's what cancel culture creates, right? one strike and one bad slip of the tongue and you're doomed, you know, your future and everything is at stake. And so being people who are uh, motivated by the grace of God, we extend grace, you know, there's times when we have to say, what did you mean by that? Did I misunderstand you? You know, can you clarify that? And that's one of the reasons that people are afraid to even talk about race, right? Is because they're afraid that they're going to say something that's going to be, um, maybe take out of context that's going to be misconstrued or misunderstood. So we can, through, again, helping our students to think and to love, we can help them to have to, to um, initiate conversations that, that feel like, like something's been accomplished um, because we can, people are able to be open without the fear of being ostracized if they say the wrong thing or the wrong phrase, for instance. Um, and so we can extend grace instead of assuming the worst about people. And that is countercultural because there is this, um, you know, like you said, this one strike dealing you're out, giving people grace. And, and you know, you, you, I mean, you even see this. You see um, a police shooting in um, North Charleston, South Carolina, a few years ago. A man, Walter Scott, who was killed by police. And the, the police officer was eventually convicted. He had shot Mr. Scott in the back. And what we saw was, um, in response, the family of, of Mr. Scott, the man who was killed, there was a viral video that went out of them praying and singing hymns to the Lord and having a heart of forgiveness and grace. And you saw them viciously attacked for this. This was considered passivity. This was considered a position of weakness. Okay, so again, these, it is very uh, countercultural to be forgiving and to, to extend grace. Um, and so we want to change that narrative and culture that in our forgiving and in our extending grace, what we're doing is we are just merely pouring out what has been poured into us. And that is the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And so that message goes, it becomes deeper and more meaningful to us and something that we want to communicate to the world because we want them to know Christ. And we know that Christ is the answer to all of these problems. You know, Jonathan, also, I'll say this as leaders and as, like I've said, this to pastors and youth pastors and college ministers and to those ministers of this generation, we have to have a very strong conviction that the Bible is the answer and that the biblical worldview is true and that it's practically reliable. And we have to have that conviction when we're conveying that to our students. Many of us are wavering on biblical truth, and we are um, entertaining a lot of these secular, philosophical, social theories in our teaching, and it's confusing. And so we have to have a conviction to stand on biblical principles and to teach our students that this grace, love, redemptive qualities that are found in the gospel are really true and that they apply to the issues of race and that you can live this out 
powerfully for the gospel's sake. Absolutely. I love that. I th- and I think you're exactly right. I think we need more courage than ever as biblical with biblical authority and to, to say what God has said, all of it. And some of it's going to resonate with culture. Some of it's going to be condemned by culture, mm-hmm. but we need to be countercultural. And that's why I'm so grateful for the, the ministry and the work that you're doing, Melissa, and so grateful for this contribution. Uh, again, the chapter is toward authentic kingdom diversity, which is it's God's idea, right? His, his beautiful world that he made. Yes, it is marred by sin, but it's his, the beautiful diversity that we see around us. That's his idea. And and it's fallen, and it'll one day be made new in the way that it's supposed to be again. And we get to be a part of that. But that's why I love I love your message in that to think carefully, but to to, to think biblically um, about that, and to love people, forgive, be countercultural. So I love that so much. So again, Melissa Palou has written this chapter toward authentic King University in the brand new book uh, published by uh, Impact Three Hundred and Sixty Institute. No be live a three hundred and sixty degree approach to discipleship in a post Christian era. That's just one of many chapters in here dealing with issues that as we care about and want to disciple Gen Z, we have to talk about and think about. And we, we need to think about issues that they're facing and, and they want to know, how do, I, how do I follow Jesus in this moment? So again, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I really appreciate all your insights and all your work. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being a part of this and all the wonderful contributors that were a part of this project. I think it's going to really impact our generation and I cannot stress enough how important that this work is. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.